Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today on Democracy Sausage, we say buy robot as the government hits control alt delete on its toxic welfare compliance scheme. Take a look at the union-busting bill and wonder who has too much power, the big unions or big business. And we discuss Australia's fraught China relationship. Is there room at the barbecue for an authoritarian state? Hi there, and thanks for joining us again on Democracy Sausage, which emerges weekly and sometimes even more frequently than that out of the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy, or the studio thereof anyway. I'm Mark Kenny, and with me today, as usual, is political scientist Dr. Maria Taflaga. Good day, Maria. Hello, everyone. And I'm delighted to welcome two giants of the Academy, Professors Matthew Gray and Frank Bongiorno, AM. Matthew Gray is director of the ANU's Centre for Social Research and Methods, and of course, Frank Bongiorno has been at the Democracy Sausage Trestle Table before now. He's head of the School of History at ANU. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Now, as we record this uh, this podcast, the federal parliament is heading into its final sitting fortnight for the year, and events might move fairly swiftly, or then again, they might not move at all in some in some spheres. There's certainly a few big issues around. Things like uh, China and foreign influence certainly made its presence felt, and of course, uh, the whole question of robo debt. We saw that um, that fairly significant back down from the government, Matthew Gray, on robo debt. Can you just uh, perhaps uh, you're an expert in this kind of policy area, so can you just perhaps frame that issue for for us in terms of you know how the government got to where it's got? So the social security system in Australia is uh, means tested. So we try to make sure that only people who need benefits receive them. And that means that people have to provide an estimate of their income. And if they get that estimate wrong, perhaps because they, uh, you know, somebody in the family gets a job and their income goes up, they might end up with an overpayment and they end up with a debt to the government. People can also have debts because they uh, change in their living arrangements and they don't notify uh, Centrelink quickly enough. Uh, it could be deliberate fraud, uh, and they end up with a debt. And the government has, uh, for many years, done matching of social security and tax and other data to try and verify whether people got what they're entitled to. So they use algorithms to do this. So there's nothing new about the use of algorithms. What was different in this situation was, A, they got the algorithm very wrong, and B, they then issued debt notice, well, notices to people saying they may have a debt and they had to uh, try and demonstrate what their income had been. And so, so the on. onus of proof almost f- yep. fell back on the person, person who was being accused. Yeah, and there was no human testing of whether those notices were accurate. Right. So if the algorithm was wrong... Yeah, uh, notices person, went out. Yeah. And then they combined that with very heavy-handed debt collection methods. Right. And this was about, you know... Objective of the government to their view that there was significant overpayments, significant debts, people getting money they're not entitled to that they needed to recover, and a strong community sentiment. Presumably, uh, there was the estimation that uh, people who were on welfare, yeah. you know, were, were entitled to a certain amount and no more. And if they'd been overpaid, we, you know, they were they were yeah. welfare fraudsters. When, when we do public 
polling on attitudes to this, people strongly support the use of linked data, you know, linked social security, tax data and so on, to make sure people don't get more than they're entitled to. So there's strong community support for that. But unfortunately, they got it very wrong and uh, some of society's most vulnerable people received letters uh, saying they may have very significant debts. Debts and, uh, that were way beyond yeah, their capacity and, and, and requiring them to provide information that uh, even on the advice on the government website. So, you know, they had to keep the information for a certain length of time, but the government was asking to go back beyond what they'd been told. Yeah, so this could go back for years, couldn't it? And that may, that's very difficult. We're talking about people on the margins of society in some cases, certainly on the margins of the economy, uh, and they are being told, you owe the Commonwealth X thousands of dollars perhaps, yeah. uh, and uh, you need to prove your income and your working arrangements for perhaps the last five or six years. Now, that's very difficult, I think, for you know someone with an accountant to do, let alone... Yeah, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's a complex system. And I mean, I think Human Services in their submission to the Senate inquiry on this matter, I think they're due to report maybe sort of first half of next year, uh, they say, well, you know, a lot of the debts were really were debts and it was only a minority where there wasn't really a, a, an overpayment or not as much as uh, that, that was claimed. But... You know, if you're on the receiving end of that and you're very vulnerable, it can have a pretty devastating impact. Well, isn't the figure almost there's like 700,000 issued and up to 200,000 are wrong? Like that is enormous. Yeah, those numbers sound about right. And and we're talking about people who uh, could have been in receipt of uh, assistance, Commonwealth assistance of one class or another, and who may have been doing casual work yep. and who, weigh, who may have within a period done quite a lot of, like for example, yep. if they were yep. students and they were working during the holidays, uh, but the algorithm was uh, doing sort of 12-month averaging. I think, averaging, and it, yeah. I mean, it just shows a lack of understanding of the system that the department was administering and uh, combined with a pretty hard-hearted attitude to people in pretty difficult circumstances in, in many cases. Yes, and, and uh, Frank, it's, uh, you know, it's obviously a calculation that uh, has been made here that uh, these people uh, who are subject to this uh, harsh uh, regimen are, are um, you know, politically marginalised as well. They're not electorally significant. So the government's shown little sort of restraint in uh, in going after them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't think anyone's ever lost an election, certainly not in living memory from targeting the unemployed or welfare recipients. Um, you know, there is an ideological, um, if you like, kind of values-based aspect to this too. I mean, the concept of the dole bludger, for instance, emerged in the 1970s during the the Fraser years, um, just a few years ago, you know, you had Joe Hockey as treasurer talking about the age of entitlement being over. And lifters, drawing, lifters and leaners. Well, and drawing directly. I mean, lifters and leaners was was lifted. Uh, he, was, <laughs> he was leaning very heavily on uh, Robert Menzies' Forgotten People broadcast in 1942. It comes directly out of that, yeah. which I think emphasises that this isn't something dreamt up uh, last week, that, that we're, we're drawing on very long-running um, ways of looking at the world that are, are, are very powerful, I think, well, particularly on the coalition side of, of politics. And before that, we had deserving and undeserving poor. Oh, indeed. It indeed. goes back to Smilesian values after Samuel Smiles in exactly. the 19th century and so on, this this idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it's part of a whole range of other policies. You know, the cashless debit card is a, another example. It's a view that you know people receiving Social security payments can't be trusted to spend the money properly and, you know, it's a very paternalistic type approach. But again, you know, the politics of that are that it's it's been pretty popular. Yeah, and it's it's an amazing uh, sort of contrast with the 
lack of any real rigor that the government wants to bring to, for example, the franking credits question. You know, so uh, shareholders who are uh, not even paying tax getting refunds, which is the policy that currently exists and which, of course, was a supercharged issue during the election campaign. We don't see anywhere near the political heat coming from the conservative side about making sure that people who, I guess, on any reasonable measure, you know, are getting a re- not not entitled to these refunds because they're getting a refund for tax they haven't paid. You know, it's a it's a pretty bizarre concept. But you you once you introduce the idea of you know uh, the unemployed people at the bottom end and this whole notion that there could be some sort of fraud that people are getting something for nothing, that suddenly takes on this there's whole a, political overlay. Well, there's a real str- like a real kind of strain in Australian political thinking and probably elsewhere about like complying with the law, being within the law, and you know people who are using franking credits are within the law. Um, whereas, you know, you know, uh, people who are so-called, um, defrauding the welfare state are, are outside of that. So, mm. so that's, I think, um, one aspect of it. But, um, Matt, what I kind of wanted to know was, do people actually really understand what is involved in some of these, like, in, in the policing of welfare recipients? Like, or is it just that they sort of have a surface understanding, um, and therefore they're less troubled by it? And perhaps this is one of the reasons why people are a bit, disquieted about Newstart, for example, because it's increasingly becoming apparent that it's older people who've worked all their lives and paid tax all their lives. What does the data tell us? So the value of Newstart has dropped from, uh, it was about 90% of the uh, age pension rate in the early 90s, -hmm. and it's now down to about 60%. Uh, And Incomes for other you know, households have gone up a lot. People are falling further and further behind. Uh, and there is a general, I think, acceptance that the rate of new starts become too low to live on. And the argument is that uh, either we can't afford it to increase it, but you know, the expenditure on unemployment benefits is really relatively small compared to other programs. Yeah. Or secondly, people are on unemployment benefits for only a short period of time. And if you raise them too much, they won't have an incentive to look for work or... We're way past yeah, that, though, We're way we? past that. I mean, three quarters of people on Newstart have been on benefits for more than a year. That's up from about half a decade ago. And partly that's because increasing the age of eligibility for age pension, as Maria was you know, alluding to, you know, these people, um, you know, they're not, with not a jo- they don't have a job in this. A woman in 60, 61 doesn't have a job. Mm. Very hard to get a job. Yeah, not eligible the, the, for age that, pension. That's the reality. I think that's what Maria was making about the yeah. changing profile of Sing- people single on Single parents start. are on Newstart now. Once the youngest child is eight, I think it is. And, um, you know, in the past, they would have been on parenting payment single. So people are ending up for much longer. and. I mean, even the Business Council of Australia is. Yeah, I was going to say, case, you, when, when you say there's a general com- uh, acceptance that Newstart is too low, I mean, it's right across the political spectrum. We've heard noises from the na- some nationals yeah. about it. We've certainly heard employer groups like mm-hmm. the BCA. Uh, there are market economists who are saying it. And, and the uh, idea welfare that. Welfare groups yeah. saying, you know, it's, it's a really, everyone thinks it except for the government, apparently. And the idea that even quite a big increase in Newstart would create big disincentives for people to find employment. I mean, it is so far away from what you would earn in the labour market that yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't wash for me. And well, not to mention how difficult compliance is. Like, it's a lot of work to comply with welfare. You need to you need to just constantly yeah. submit forms. You need to ring up and tell Centrelink stuff. You have to sit on the phone waiting for Centrelink. To it's a job in itself, exactly. Yeah. And the constant applying for jobs yes. that you know you won't get precisely yeah. in places that you can't afford to get to. I'm a bit unusual person to go and study annual reports of government departments. And, Excellent. Uh, That's why we've got you. If you look at sort of performance management, if you look at you know, the annual reports for for uh, 
Social Security in the in 97, they talk about New Start. I mean, there's about adequacy and they have measures things like relative to average earnings. And they also talk about encouraging self-reliance and so on. Uh, if you look at what the indicators are now, uh, it's all about reducing lifetime welfare costs. Yeah. That's, that's the indicator, yeah. not is it adequate. And if you look at the um, – uh, And so that's code for cutting the budget, right? Like making it a smaller proportion of budget, the budget expenditure. Oh, I think that uh, unemployment benefit – well, yeah, I mean there's certainly a desire to reduce social security expenditure. Yeah, so there's a view that if you can intervene early mm. and prevent people becoming long-term welfare dependent – they're more likely to get a job. And, and that's and so a perfectly on, respectable uh, objective, isn't objective, it? I mean, I mean, that, that's, that's what we all want. It's good for taxpayers. It's good for the individuals. I mean, yeah. Yeah, but, but on the other hand, to not have any discussion of adequacy is a pretty extraordinary mm. position to have arrived at. But we should be uh, you know, uh, fair here in terms of the facts. The uh, Both sides of politics went to the last election yep. not promising to increase New Start. I mean, Labor has since muscled up on that a bit and um, uh, made it clear that it believes New Start is too low. But uh, this is something I'd asked uh, treasurers about at uh, post-budget luncheons for the last few years. I sort of had the same question that I ran to both sides because this has been running for such a long time, this question mm-hmm. of adequacy in New Start. And uh, Chris Bowen, even before the last election, was saying, we'll review it, was you know was as close as Labor yeah. got to it. Same with income management cash as debit card. Yeah. We weren't prepared to go to the election saying, yeah. Now, yeah. now, change the position, but... Yeah, and of course the government's line is the best form of welfare is a job, which is, um, as I've um, waxed lyrical on here before, is a, you know a, it's kind of a fudge. It's not really the answer to the question well, at all. And unemployment, as we know, is in yeah. fact creeping up again. Well, yeah, and there's also quite a lot of people who are not unemployed who don't have a job but would like one. Yes, so, precisely. Yeah. So, I mean, so partly it's about shuffling around who has a job. Um, well, you, you only need to be working for one hour in the in the period to be considered un to be considered employed, right? So what this what this definition actually means, and what people in the community but, might think yeah. it means, is two but, different things. But of course, if you're working one hour a week and you're in a relatively low income household, you'll receive government benefits. Yes, so, that's right. So I mean, they are trying to encourage, you know, this sort of uh, areas in which earnings won't affect benefits. But mm. yeah, and that's part of the debate about what incentives you create through it. One of the other issues that's uh, coming up in this sitting fortnight is the uh, Ensuring Integrity Bill. Uh, This is the uh, union uh, sometimes described as the union-busting bill that uh, the government is pursuing where they would apply um, much tougher sanctions on unions that don't comply with the law, don't meet all the rules, perhaps don't meet all the um, technical requirements for giving notification and so forth, and indeed would give uh, give the government, the minister, uh, or the authorities' powers to um, suspend or disqualify union officials as well. It's a bit. Uh, it's, it's unknown at this stage whether the numbers are going to be there, but the atmospherics suggest that they probably are. A bit turns on what Jackie Lambie's going to do, and One Nation's been in this space as well. Funnily enough, One Nation's been saying that it uh, will not uh, participate in the kind of union bashing exercise, which is quite interesting, a bit more of a sophisticated position from One Nation, I think, on that, a recognition that unions in, in their um, in their electoral base or union members in their electoral base not are, naturally, are important. Yeah, not naturally Pauline's kind of politics. Well, either. no, you wouldn't have thought so, but nonetheless, I think it's a legitimate uh, position for them to take. But oh, they've been successful in getting some uh, amendments for this. So Christian Porter, the, the um, 
Industrial Relations Minister has acknowledged this and there has been some flexibility shown by the government. It's very keen to get this up. The politics of this, Frank, are, uh, are quite interesting because we know that this has been like um, a tough area for the coalition after the work choices, you know, flight of fancy, I guess you'd call it, uh, under Howard. We saw John Howard kind of, you know, take some of the rough edges off that in, in, a, in an unsuccessful attempt to kind of kill that issue off. And then, of course, we saw Tony Abbott saying industrial relations reform was dead, buried and cremated, basically, uh, you know, when he was prime minister. Um, but they're, they're weighing back into this now with this and other, other talk of uh, award simplification down the track. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of tracks at the moment, aren't there? There's one around the whole issue of union integrity, which initially, of course, focused on John Setker and the... I'm going to get the, the, the number of M's wrong as usual, <laughs> C-F-M-M-E-U. Correct, um, correct. Uh, and then, as you say, there's that second track now that, that uh, Morrison raised in, um, yeah, he's addressed the business community, which was about award simplification. Mm. I, I presume it means to a large extent what limiting the number of matters that the awards would actually cover, um, which has been an d- ongoing debate. I think it goes back to a, what at least a product, well, it goes back much longer, but certainly a Productivity Commission report of a few years back, which suggested, you know, um, recommended simplification of that kind. Um, yeah, look, it, it's been a, um, unlike the other issue we we're just talking about. It, it has been, I think, a more electorally potent one for the coalition, uh, you know, certainly over the last uh, 15 years or so. And I think you know, in general, the government's um, approach to it's been pretty um, cautious on the whole, certainly the broad issue of uh, industrial relations reform. On the issue of union integrity, I mean, to some extent, that's come out of the Royal Commission of a, a few years ago, um, Trade Union Royal Commission, um, comes out of continuing concern about, you know, the one very powerful um, union of manual workers that remains, and that's uh, the CFMMEU. Um I mean, it's running into the difficulty, though, isn't it? That you know, there are clearly uh, broader issues of integrity um, uh, that the government uh, is also confronted with at the moment. There's obviously the issue of an, integ- an integrity commission, a kind of federal ICAC, which yeah. it seems distinctly uh, uninterested in, uh, or rather interested in in basically putting up something that won't work. Yeah, um, very some sort of very limited sort of capacity that doesn't really go near what the state ICACs that we've seen have done. Exactly. And, and you know, also information leaked out about the Labor Party's position on this uh, coming out of the last election. There were a number of uh, shadow ministers who also weren't terribly keen on the, the whole idea, although shortened to his credit was. Um, and now, of course, well, the continuing issue, of course, of, of integrity in the banking system and the, the revelations of the last few days about Westpac and, and uh, its multiple breaches of the law. And so I think, you know, the, the whole issue of... Oh, I think 23 million breaches. Only 23 I mean, million. Yeah. So it wasn't that many, but um, and of course, it didn't bear on serious issues or anything like that. <laughs> no, no. So, yeah, indeed, you know. So it's obviously pretty serious stuff and, and people do make connections between these kind of events. I mean, all these, these sorts of um, issues. So, you know, yes, integrity for, uh, for unions, but, you know, um, that the unions are complaining that, that, that the legislation will allow deregistration for pretty trivial breaches of things like paperwork at the yeah. same time as a bank is allowed to, to, to do, you know, to, to essentially, you know, commit those sorts of breaches and then decide for itself what it will do, whether its CEO will remain or whatever. And, and it doesn't Yeah, that seems to be, to be the line from the government, doesn't yeah. it? That uh, it's a matter for the board and that's a matter for mm. the board's a matter for the shareholders and, uh, mm. you know, um, yeah, I think mm. many Australians would look at that and be a bit, you know, nonplussed. 
I mean, Australian election study data, very long running, very excellent survey done by um, on a, you know, it, for every election since. 1987, 1987. by Ian McAllister. In fact, we got coming da- out of ANU indeed. Data back to the early 80s, 83. And uh, you know, when people are asked, do they think unions have too much power and do they think big business has too much power, what you find is that uh, in 83, when union rate, you know, there'd been significant industrial disputation, new membership was much higher, 70% of people said, yeah, too much power. Today, it's fallen to about just, you know, about 47%. Yeah, so less than half. But if you look at big no. business, it's gone the other way. In, you know, in 83, about half said too much power, and now it's up to three quarters. So yeah, sort of, I think it supports some of the things Frank was uh, just saying, that mm. um, you know, it'd be very even-handed in, I think, the um, corruption and uh, abuse of power and so on. And um, I think certainly the population uh, is taking a view that big, big business is um, you know, a strong focus. It has a lot of sway and perhaps not the levels of accountability that uh, they might pretend that they do have. Maria, I mean, there's a lot talked about trust in, in, in public institutions, in politics, in media, in companies. I mean, this all this stuff, the stuff that happened with Westpac uh, last week, you know, these revelations, it all plays into that, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, using the same data that, that Matt Gray is referring to, um, we do see that trust in uh in politics in particular, has been declining. And when I say politics, the question is basically, do you agree that politicians will act in their own interests over the public's? And that has um, been increasing over time. And I guess what is most disturbing about these this trend is that usually it recovers when we change governments, right? Briefly, so, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, people go, yes, <laughs> we do trust our politicians. Um, and um, But that hasn't actually happened and that, that trend has been um, getting worse and worse and worse since 2007. And I believe the, the latest data for 2009 should be released very soon. So keep your keep your eyes peeled. But what is interesting is that at the same time, Australians trust in the efficacy of government, the idea that procedures and processes will be fair has remained broadly stable. And I guess that will be really interesting to see what has changed in the 2019 data, given just given how prominent um, stories around, you know, robo-debt and other forms of um you know, government's not necessarily treating people in the same way um, is kind of, uh, you know, bubbling away under the surface and whether or not that is an issue that only really matters to people that are clearly directly affected or if that is sort of permeated beyond, you know, affected parties and their their families. So we asked about data linkage, use of data by government and uh, what people thought about that. And yeah, most this is of, linkage of like, for example, yeah, tax data with other... Social security yeah. with maybe health data with yep. social security, you know, MBS, you know, Medicare data, yep. pharmaceuticals. And people are pretty supportive of that. They think government should be able to use data to things like make sure people don't get benefits they're not entitled to. They also think they should be able to use data to make sure that people get benefits that they are entitled to. And if we go back to the uh, robo-debt, the focus is on overpayment. I think really there ought to be a focus on over and underpayment. And Mm. if the data matching says you got less money than you're entitled to, I'm not suggesting we go back retrospectively, but we should fix up going forward so that people get what they're entitled to, not less. And, And But when you ask about people's confidence and whether they thought, you know, in a whole range of ways government might use the data, I mean, they weren't very confident about their ability to prevent hacks or disclosure of personal information. But they also had significant concern that the data would be used to make unfair decisions. And I think that's a real worry. If, I mean, if we think our government's marginally incompetent, 
That's one thing. Mm. But to say that they're going to use it to make unfair decisions is uh, really much more troubling uh, mm. for me. It's anyway. really interesting, all of that stuff, because I think Australians have had a different relationship with the state from that which you might uh, be able to identify in the US and, and some other countries. We tend to be quite have, have relatively high levels of confidence, at least in our public service and, and you know, our government yeah. bodies. And, uh, yeah. and so that so what you're saying about sort of data matching there doesn't uh, or sharing doesn't particularly surprise me. Uh, you know, you, you would think, oh, well, I pay this much tax and the government therefore knows about it. Uh, why do I have to report that to someone else? I'm quite happy if that data is shared. That is, you know, what most people would think. Yeah. yeah and for example, yeah, I mean, there, there are good reasons where you want to share data. There's a natural disaster. Mm. You, you, you might think that, you know, different parts of the public service would share data in order to try and meet, you know, a really critical need. But actually, uh, you know, that's not always allowed under the law. They have to get permission and so on. So, you know, th there are, you know, you look at the issues around the, um, what was it about the healthcare uh, data? Uh, my, my, uh, my health, the electronic yeah, health yes, records, yeah. Yeah, my yeah. health records. And, yeah, yeah. you know, again, while most people ended up not opting out, there were significant numbers who opted out from something which might save your life. So it does reveal a certain scepticism about how well, the data I think that reveals some scepticism about large data sets, though, as well, about the security yeah. of them. I mean, we've seen... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Some pretty big, uh, uh, you know, hacks of information. We've, of course, suffered one here at ANU, but we've seen um, seen some, you know, massive uh, breaches of data security, and that is one of the concerns, yeah. of course, with that my health record, that information that may affect your eligibility for insurance or for or, or for a job or for whatever may come into the hands of, you know, may become yeah. commercially yeah, the, accessible, for example, and that this may have implications for people. Yeah. Historically, though, I guess people. Um, I think are probably more relaxed about some of these issues now than they probably were, you know, a couple of generations ago. Australia I mean, card. The Australia card, revolt of 1987 yes. being yes. a club, which was just explosive. And I think the issue, you know, nowadays people know that their data is out there in multiple places. Um, and so while they have nagging concerns and worries about both private and public sector, um, you know, I think in, in some ways it, it does seem to me to be at a, a lower level of noise than... And they're, they're certainly yeah. much more worried about the private sector, social yeah. media companies, than they are about yeah. government. Yeah. Well, which would be empirically valid. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. They're also uh, the, the most enthusiastic users of social media are also probably the most cavalier about sharing yeah. large amounts of personal information, yeah. as we've seen, which... Yeah. There should, should be a black mirror for bureaucracy and then I'm, I'm sure we'll see concern rise. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Frank, just uh, before we take a quick break, um, going back to the point Matt Gray was making about trust in unions being uh, – the, the, you know, the, the feeling that unions had too much power in 1983 mm. uh, compared to now, it's gone from whatever it was uh, – Yeah, about 70 to 50. Yeah, 70 to 50. Under 50. Yeah. Uh, does, does that reflect the rise? I mean, we've just been talking about social media companies. Mm. Does it reflect the rise of these mega private sector organizations? So we see that they do have a lot of power. And at the same yeah. time on the union side, 
the decline of union membership, which has been quite marked since 1983. And I'm also just thinking back to Bob yeah. Hawke's, um, you know, election uh, slogan in 83, which was so successful, bringing Australia yeah. together. Yeah. Um, because there'd been, you know, quite a period of industrial unrest through the Fraser period and in the, in the wake of the Whitlam dismissal and everything else. So it was a different Australia that we had then than we have now. Very much so. And I think Hawke's own profile um, uh, illustrates that. I mean, it, it would be just inconceivable for a, a trade unionist, a, a president of the ACTU in 2019 to have the profile that Bob Hawke had mm. as celebrity back in the 70s. And I think that suggests just how much more trade unions were at the forefront of people's minds. And um, so the figures that Matt describes don't, don't surprise me at all. Union density, as it's called, coverage at, at the beginning of the 80s would have been about 50%, about one in every two workers. These days, probably, what, 12 13%, mm. and of course, much lower for the private than the, mm. than the public sector. There's a kind of sleight of hand, isn't there, around the coalition's treatment of these issues. On the one hand, it ridicule, ridicules the union movement for its poor coverage. It you know, covers such a, a small number of workers. We know that there are particular reasons for that. I mean, Australian industrial law rewards free riding, for instance. Um, but nonetheless, that, that's a, a kind of an argument that's put. And on the other hand, the need to, to, to um, shear union power. I mean, it doesn't make a great deal of sense in a way. It's also a massively feminised yeah. Uh, organ set of organisations now, but you don't really That's hear really that, right? Union, thugs. union right. thugs. That's right. You hear yeah. about union thugs in the CFMM. Not man, people. It, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. Teachers and nurses and aged care workers, yeah. which make up the bulk. And indeed, I think the largest union now is a female union. Yeah. It's, it's, it covers health workers. Well, I mean, the the sort of the, you know the, the vanguard of union lobbyists that came to Canberra, they were all female, hmm. right? You know. Um, so we'll watch this space. Well, I think certainly. I think this is the data that um, let's go back and check. In 2016, men were more likely to think unions had too much power than women, mm. but there was no gender difference in big business. Yeah. Right. So maybe that reflects something about the working conditions of women Absolutely. and the disparities and a view mm. that, yeah. But on the business side too, I mean, your question was about that, Mark, and, you know, that's also about oligopoly, isn't it? It's about, you know, essentially the fight for our shopping baskets being between two large companies and a smaller foreign one, um, the the four big banks and their utter domination. Too um, big to fail. Too big to fail. Too um, big to nail, as I made Too big to nail, too big <laughs> to fail. Uh, absolutely both. Um, so it's, all, it, it's also about the ways in which multinationals and, and, and indeed um, – um, Australian companies have become incredibly large, and uh, you know, within a, 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 a yes, a system of of regulation around issues of competition. But people are very sceptical about how effective some of that is. Yes. All right. Well, let's take a break there, and uh, when we come back, uh, perhaps engage with this whole issue of uh, of China, which is you know dominating Australian politics at the moment. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Well, one of the uh, issues that is just dominating Australian politics at the moment and it seems to be kind of ratcheting up really with uh, these revelations of a, a, a defector from China, a, a, 
an espionage operative who says that he has information about all kinds of nefarious activities that uh, the, the Chinese security state has been enacting, not just in uh, Australia but in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Uh, this guy's name is Wang Luchong, and um, he's apparently talking to ASIO and other security agencies. The government is considering this request, and there's a pretty widespread acceptance that irrespective of the veracity of some of his claims, it's pretty hard to imagine that he could safely go back to China it's really quite extraordinary stuff because uh, there are allegations that um, he's apparently making a, a suggestion that he knows of assassination operations that have been conducted on foreign soil, including Australia. He knows the names of security operatives uh, operating in Australia, uh, you know, Chinese spies. Uh, if you think about that for a moment, that means that the Australian government will have custody of those names and uh, will need to act effectively um, so, you know, we could be looking at uh, the expulsion of diplomats, as has happened, particularly happened in the Cold War between the US and uh, and Russia and the Soviet Union, and, and certainly has happened in a number of other countries at, at times, but it, you, know, you can't imagine that doing much for the uh, the, the Australia-China relationship. So it's a really uh, fascinating situation that's emerging, and overlaid on all of that, we've had a, a speech from Paul Keating last week, uh, who says that the, we, you know, our, uh, we don't really have a foreign policy in relation to China. He says that there is a lack of strategic realism uh, in the recognition of China as a large state that's not going anywhere, and we need to stop being so paranoid about it. And controversially, he says that... Um, uh, the the sort of China bogey has is so strong now that it's kind of being whispered in almost McCarthyist terms. That the old idea of you know whispering about the communist threat is now is you know you could just replace the word communism with China and you've got a similar level of uh, of paranoia. Frank, what do you what do you make of this in historical terms? Are we is this uh, this is a whole new kind of um, period of of strategic realignment and is Australia's foreign policy about to go through a shift? Yeah, I mean, the problem with the whole McCarthyist um, parallel uh, comparison is that the threat of the Soviet Union was real in the 1950s and the threat of domestic subversion was real in the 1950s. There were spies in Australia. Um, you know, so in that sense, there are parallels. And, and, you know, to suggest that, oh, you know, this is another round of paranoia, well, of course there's paranoia around these issues, inevitably, then and now. But I think um, a lot of the when, – when people talk about McCarthyism, they're talking about those trials, they're talking about actors being dragged up yeah, in the United course. States so that, and, you know, the House Un-American Affairs Committee or yeah. Sort of carry on. Yeah. Is there is there that level of overreaction? I mean, we we are. Mm. Let's not forget we we are in our twenty ninth year of unbroken growth. Mm. I mean, yes, the stimulus spending during the GFC was important. Uh, you know, which the the Rudd government was criticised for, but which, which no doubt uh, was was highly effective. But the real difference between the Australian economy and so many others is our fantastic economic relationship and I say fantastic in the sense of you know very mm. positive economic relationship with China a huge market for our commodities yeah, and that's the the novelty is of the situation we're in there's just the tiniest parallel in you know kind of miniature and uh, with the relationship with Japan in the 1930s you know mm. we were a, a country that was seen to pose a strategic threat was becoming a more important economic partner but of course that was piddling compared to to the relationship the economic relationship between China and Australia these days I mean China became what a most important trading partner about what 2008 or 9 and remains so um, these are very difficult 
issues um, for that very reason. That that you know, I mean, these are kind of commonplace observations, really. The the tension between the strategic and the economic side. Um, I think there are also issues around the implications of, I think, quite warranted and justified fears about um, the activities of um, Chinese Communist Party aligned individuals and organisations in Australia. Um, I think they are legitimate, but the, the implications of that for the broader Chinese uh, diaspora in Australia, the Chinese Australian community, um, who quite rightly in some cases are worried about the, the, the kind of um, tone of, of, mm. of this debate. The, I mean, the, the creeping the f- escalation of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, 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 um, uh, yes, the, I suppose the, the, the kind of seepage from, uh, it's a very um, important distinction, but not one that often applies in political discourse between worrying over the activities of the Chinese Communist Party, whose values most Australians would not share, quite rightly, um, and the seepage between that and one's attitude to Chinese Australians um, and, you know, the the, the possibility of stigma um, and and the possibility of... It's a really interesting point, that, because Duncan Lewis, the former head of ASIO, has warned that China is looking to effectively take over Australia in sort of political Mm. terms, so that, you know, to take significant significant control through uh, through these underhand means. And there's one of the allegations that's come up, the most recent one from this uh, bloke applying for, uh, for asylum, is uh, that um, Chinese spies offered a Melbourne businessman uh, a large sum of money to attempt to uh, essentially install him in the House of Representatives to actually have a, a kind of an agent of China in our parliament. This is a pretty explosive revelation as well. So, um, it, yeah, fascinating level of involvement. Well, it, it sort of builds on like a, a discourse that has been building around China and parliamentarians for a while now. Like, um, you know, we saw that with the discussion around Gladys Liu and her connections to um, some some sort of Chinese organisation kind of bodies. But what we kind of know from the research is that People who come from China, um, they, they come, become socialized into Australian politics by engaging in these kinds of community kind of groups. And of course, in some aspects, there are, are people who have sort of communist party links and, um, the way that Chinese people necessarily can understand how to engage with politics is quite different to how local born people engage with politics. So, um, some research done here at the ANU essentially found using AES data, uh, essentially found that um, Chinese-born people were more likely to donate to political parties but were less likely to talk about politics, whereas that's not the same for other types of migrants. And so we can kind of see a different type of pattern in the way people kind of engage, which can then kind of have these sort of overtones, which we saw mm. in the Gladys Liu debate, which can end up tarring a whole kind of um, group of people who are bringing a different set of ways of engaging with politics. What I also think is kind of interesting is that, you know, if we think about domestic politicians, the average politician, they are not geared to really be thinking about foreign policy questions because you don't really win government in this country on foreign policy questions generally. It's just mm. not it's Correct. just not the meat and potatoes of Australian politics. 
And, you know, and most politicians have been very happy on both sides of politics to just sort of walk the we don't have to choose between our friends and our economic markets. We are clearly hitting a crunch point. And, you know, our our elected MPs are all struggling to find Mm. a language and a way to talk about it whilst, you know, you've got defections of spies, you've got talk around Chinese candidates, we've got increasingly uh, disturbing language around um, our new Australian Chinese uh, you know, migrants coming into this country and the foreign interference laws, right, which yeah. are seeking to limit the amount of money coming from overseas into Australian politics, which used to be mostly U.S. money and, um, you know, and that's mm. sort of changing. And indeed, you've got uh, the recent uh, uh, decision by the, the Chinese Communist Party not to allow two Australian MPs, both Conservative exactly. MPs, Andrew Hastie mm. and James Patterson, uh, from, uh, you know, to attend a, a, a study tour in, in, um, in China, which they were about to embark on with this China Matters think tank. Uh, you know, essentially, Hastie's obviously been, you know, very vocal in his uh, warnings about China, but there's a real, uh, you know, significantly changing atmosphere. One of the things that Duncan Lewis said uh, recently was that he would like to see, um, the local Chinese community become a source of, of information for Australian security agencies where they, you know, came across information that, uh, you know, there was, a, you know, wrongdoing going on, that there were attempts to uh, subvert the Australian political system. And I'm just wondering whether we, whether that, you know, the parallel there is pretty obvious because uh, that's, that's something the security agencies have been very mm-hmm. strong on with the Islamic community uh, in terms of uh, the, the terrorist threat. I'm just wondering whether... If, if that is the objective, they're going the right way about it. Cause it, you know, it, it does, as Maria's saying, it does appear to be a, a pretty febrile atmosphere emerging here about the, you know, in the relationship between Australia and Chinese and the Chinese community here. Yeah. Look, I think that there's, I think the political leadership around this issue has been, um, unimpressive. Um, I think it's quite clear one of the reasons for that, that both political parties have been accepting large donations. Yes. That they yeah. Um, but look, the, the, and there's uh, a significant uh, local Chinese population. I mean, in, in um, Gladys which, which, which is seat. concentrated as well, so it's electorally significant. Yes, it yeah. was very significant in Chisholm, and, yeah. uh, and both uh, the Labor candidate and the and the Liberal candidate, the one who won, were you know Chinese origin candidates, and and a lot of the electoral material was in Chinese language, and uh, you know mm. it's a significant electoral wedge in some places, some parts of Sydney yeah. and Melbourne particularly. Yeah, I mean, I, no, I, do, I do find some of the, um, I think, overblown rhetoric alarming. I mean, the notion of a, a Chinese takeover of the Australian political system, I think, is absurd, yeah, frankly. It's crazy. And I think that we need our politicians to exercise leadership because I don't think it's the role of security chiefs, frankly, to get into that business. I mean, that, that is essentially a political uh, speech, in my view. That's he's making political points there, not partisan political points, but they are but, essential. But, but, I mean, but take just, over the political just system. Just being devil's advocate yeah. for a moment, though, isn't it the job of security agencies to get politicians and the broader community to wake up wherein they uh, assess the situation as being one of, uh, you know, where there are significant challenges that are just not being appreciated? They have to sort of, mm. I mean, that that appears to be the, the motive here. Um, you know, there is there's sort of actions being taken on multiple levels by uh, by by China as a state, by China uh, Communist Party connected companies, uh, by individuals, and there's you know a lot of talk about China, the Chinese diaspora on campuses and all that sort of stuff. At multiple levels, the argument is that uh, that China is seeking to exercise undue influence, and that 
it's very hard to discern, but the aggregate effect of that is quite significant. That's the, the argument. Mm. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that's your argument and I agree with it, um, but that's not the rhetoric he used. And I, I think that's the problem here, that there is a vacuum at the moment that um, is, is being filled by relatively junior politicians, um, as we've seen in recent weeks, that's been filled by public servants. Uh, it needs to be filled by political leaders because this is one of the existential issues in Australian politics, um, like climate change. Mm. This is one of the big ones. And, and, and like climate change, it's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. It, it's big. Um, it needs proper political leadership. Um, that needs to come from all of the major parties, um, uh, certainly uh, from the two major sides of politics, um, and that doesn't appear to be happening at the moment. Um, it's being treated as a peripheral issue, um, and no doubt one of the reasons for that is the economic dimension of it, but somehow or other, um, our politicians are going to have to find a way through this because it matters a lot. One of the suggestions that's come up from Labor in the last few days is the notion of uh, both parties getting together and 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 sort of in a bipartisan way reaching um, uh, new policy settings or new policy language in terms of the Australia-China relationship. Matt Gray, what do you think of that as an idea? Just as a sort of, I know it's not your f- area of specialty, but as a as a as a yeah. concept, I mean, does it? Attract you? Well, China's huge population growing rapidly. I was in China a couple of weeks ago and there's many things to really admire about what's being achieved in China. And as you pointed out, Australia uh, has very strong trading partner with China. I mean, China is critical to Australia's economic success. We have, I'm not quite sure, I think something like 12% of the Australian population is Asian Australian. Now, mm-hmm. it's not all from uh, People's Republic of China, mainland China, but still pretty significant. So I think that, yeah, we, we do need to have a political consensus and a way of dealing with China, which is not about domestic politics, but which is about the national interest. And really, it's, um, you know, it's really the issue of our time in many, in many ways. And Australia must find a way to walk the line of um, finding a way to form a positive and strong relationship with China, if at all possible. One of the most disheartening things about this is, you know, this is a problem we've kind of been storing up since the 19... I mean, even as a teenager, I could see that there was going to be a problem um, with a situation where our economic relationship was developing with a country that was essentially a tyranny. Um, mm. And, I mean, at a, and, I mean, obviously 1989 brought that to a head in a way, but in another sense it didn't because we kind of, you know, dealt with 1989 and moved on. Um, and when I say we, I'm talking about Australia, um, and, and kind of, you know, said, oh, well, that's, you know, um, we don't like it when tanks run over um, students, but nonetheless, um, the world moves on. Well, I, th- and- I think, funnily enough, there was something else that happened in 1989, which perhaps fed some level of optimism about it, and that is obviously the fall of the Berlin Wall and essentially the collapse of the of the Soviet Union, the, the end of the Cold War, effectively. And I think that fed a suspicion, an expectation even, it seems folly now, but I can understand you know, why it was thought then, that with the rapid development of China would come both the freeing up of its economy and the freeing up, freeing up of its political system as well. But the Chinese Communist Party obviously took the lessons from Mikhail Gorbachev's, you know, Glasnost perestroika experiment and decided, well, we might be freeing up the economy. We might be going for, you know, huge amount of private wealth and so forth, but we're not going to free up the political system. And if anything, 
uh, Australia has now found, found itself sort of caught napping really because China's been going the other way. Under Xi Jinping, it is arguably more authoritarian now than it was two years ago and that was more authoritarian than it was two years before that. But this is a new sort of point in history for Australia. Before that, Australia's economic relationships, its biggest ones were with Britain and then the US, right? And they were very obviously very different polities to to China. So, mm. so you know, it is now up to politicians to sort of actually navigate very difficult and very different waters than what has been our tradition. Yeah, I mean, we drew, when I say we, I think the West generally, certain Australians drew the wrong conclusions from 89. It should have told them that actually what we were seeing was you could have, um, a, a, you know, a move to a market economy with authoritarianism, um, but they were kind of led off track by the whole end of history thesis. Yes, you know, yes. Francis Fukuyama, um, there was some sort of inexorable, um, you know, trend towards liberal democracy, and this is just completely, yeah. complete nonsense. And we, we it, it should have been recognised as nonsense at a pretty early stage in the 1990s. But in a sense, we had an incentive to believe it um, because, because of the growing importance of that economic it's, relationship. It's only a minority, but it's increasing numbers who, who don't take a view that democracy is clearly the best form of yes, government. That's true. I mean, that's, you know, and, uh, and particularly in uh, Asia, you know, data from the Asian barometer would clearly show that, that mm-hmm. there's a retreat yep. from a view that you know, democracy is something necessary to aspire to and that democratic governments mm-hmm. are the best place to address the problems we face. Levels of trust in government in China are very high. Yeah. They're a, mod- a model for us all, really. <laughs> <laughs> and, and interestingly, uh, one of the things we've learned, you know, learned more graphically from the uh, from you know the appalling situation that's unfolded in Hong Kong over the last several months now, with the demonstrations and the increasing violence, and that doesn't show any sign of any. One of the things we've learned there more often is the, or more recently, is the, uh, the the fact that so many people from mainland China didn't know much at all about the very events you're talking about in 1989 in Tiananmen. Mm-hmm. Square. It literally was just airbrushed out of the uh, out of the the history of of uh, the Chinese state, and that really tells you a lot, doesn't it? All right, look, it's been absolutely fabulous uh, canvassing all of these issues with you today. So thank you, Matt Gray, Frank Bongiorno, and of course Maria Taflaga. Uh, this is um, Democracy Sausage, as you know, coming to you from the uh, Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU. You can uh, contact us on. Apps Policy Forum, that's our Twitter handle. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod, and the email is podcast at policyforum.net. Now, I did have a question from Liam Hughes about uh, robo debt. I think we have answered it, so I hope we have Liam uh, through Facebook. Um, but we do encourage you and others to always uh, contact us. We love having your feedback and get onto the uh, podcast. Subscribe if you can. That's always good. And give us a review if, uh, if you feel inclined. And we'll look forward to catching you again next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.